Hi, everyone. Welcome to Education Empowered, a new podcast from Salesforce.org, where we speak to the change makers and the trailblazers that are paving a path forward for the students of tomorrow. My name is Jason Belland. I'm the vice president of student success at Salesforce.org. And I'm joined by my co-host and also a trailblazer and a change maker and a superstar podcaster. She's all over the internet. Haley Gold from Michigan State University. Haley, so great to be here with you today on this is our third episode of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's been wonderful. Um, the, the last two episodes have been really fun. I'm excited for today. You know, always love podcasting, but especially with you, Jason. <laughs> well, I'm surprised that we made it this far. You know, three episodes seems like it seems like we've been doing this for like three years at this point. Um, it's, yeah. it's been a journey. We are total yeah. pros here. And by the way, do you want to plug? I think you should probably plug like your your podcast that you're doing with some of our some of our friends in the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this podcast is obviously really great in, in focus. We're also doing another one on um, more collectively, it, well, we call it the podcast. So C-A-C-H-E stands for Collective Advice for CRM and Higher Ed. It's an effort put on by the Higher Ed Advisory Council, of which I'm a member. And we interview a university and try to dig in a little bit more on some of the operational sides of things, like how people actually do this at a campus and uh, the triumphs and tribulations, if you will, of how they're doing it. So it's, it's really great. Um, it's been really wonderful. So, you know, check us out at the podcast.com. Fantastic. Well, um, Haley, I'm glad to be here with you and thanks for, uh, thanks for being with me on this episode three. And this is going to be a great episode because we're talking about data science with a data scientist, <laughs> um, which is really cool. I think we're going to dive into some great topics. So let's welcome Suzanne Yuan. She's the director of data science here at salesforce.org. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited, Suzanne. I haven't really met you before, so I'm excited to learn a little bit more about you and your background, um, kind of how you got started. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of how you got to where you are today and what you do at Salesforce.org? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I started my education actually as a mechanical engineer. I used to design, I used to sort of be in the space of designing medical devices. So things like pacemakers and neurovascular embolic coils. Um, and then when I was in graduate school at some point, I sort of realized that I really liked being around people and I really was more interested in how we are sort of co-evolving with technology. So when I graduated, I went into data consulting. I ended up being at a bunch of Fortune 500s, uh, big companies, small companies um, like Visa and Williams-Sonoma and doing a whole bunch of uh, different analytics and this was sort of a long time ago before data science was really a field. <laughs> so uh, back then it was sort of more like data analytics sort of things. When I joined uh, Salesforce after a while, I started doing a lot more volunteering and really started to think more about how we can start using data science and AI and machine learning into sort of our nonprofit and our sort of non-traditional spaces, I guess you call it. I'd love to kind of dig in on the work you're doing because, you know, I, I imagine some, some folks might be listening and just, um, maybe they've never had an interaction with somebody who's so focused on, on AI and data science. And really I would love just, you know, for those who are interested in maybe thinking about their own careers and, um, you know, maybe where there might be opportunities for them to grow and expand into different areas, maybe share a little bit about, you know, what is your kind of day to day look like in the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I spend a lot of my day sort of talking with a lot of the wonderful folks around in, in our ecosystem and sort of thinking about how we can help them do their jobs better. 
or how we can help them achieve their missions more efficiently. Right. So if we're sort of thinking about education, there's there's a lot of different aspects of the student life cycle. And sort of when we think about AI, some of the big ways to realize or to think about where AI might be helpful is, for instance, if you're doing something and um, you're doing that same thing over and over, for instance, there's a lot of areas where AI can come into play. And sort of when we think about the student life cycle, there's a ton of different aspects of it, right? So we basically sort of can think about if we start in the very beginning, right, with sort of applying when students are even just thinking about which schools do they want to apply to or, you know, how their essay is doing or how they can write a better essay or how do we help them with filling out their FAFSA, for instance, or, you know, like, which schools should they apply to? There's so many questions that are in the students' minds in every step of the way, right? So from the applying part to when they're actually there and how do they succeed and then, you know, to afterwards. So um, continuing education, there's, there's so many different aspects of the entire student life cycle that we can really help with. And so sort of a way to think about AI is when we have a problem and AI can usually help or we can find some ways to help optimize how do we get to that sort of end goal, the outcome or what we call is the use case. Let me let me just do a quick follow up on that. So, um, you know, sometimes I hear folks in the in the AI conversation just talking about making sure you've got the right problem right? or you're asking a narrow enough question so that or a specific enough question or hypothesis so that you can kind of use AI in a useful way. How, how should folks be thinking about kind of just even formulating these questions? Yeah, absolutely. So it is really about asking the right questions. Um, so AI is very much about sort of these ideas of use cases and around sort of metrics and what we're trying to optimize for. So for instance, if we're trying to, let's say, make a essay that, write an essay that, is of a certain quality metric. So, you know, it doesn't have uh, spelling errors. It doesn't have grammatical errors. But we can also kind of, you know, look at some judgments in terms of the level of vocabulary, for instance, that it's, you know, using. Um, I mean, those are very, very simplified sort of things. But it, we work with experts to figure out what is the metrics that we're trying to optimize towards. And that's using data potentially from like a prior class or something to make um, assumptions or understanding of sort of how somebody might rate somebody and trying to apply that at mass, right? That's that's essentially some of those some of the ways in which you're using use cases to define uh, those metrics. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, one of them is definitely using different prior data, historical data, to sort of train our models. So uh, we call that our training data, basically. And there, there's a whole bunch of things that can kind of go into that. But yeah, basically, a lot of like sort of machine learning, if we want to think of it in a really simple term, is sort of using the past to sort of predict and to help with the future. And let me let me follow up on that for a minute. I think that's interesting. I mean, I, and I'm not I can't remember now that the last podcast, Haley, seems like it was 10 years ago, but... Um, but we, you know, we talked with, um, Suzanne, we talked with, um, Jay Cornsby and he was also part of our AI week <laughs> conversation. And, and one of the conversations we had with him and with others, um, is around, you know, certainly there's what we said, you know, that notion of you can use the historical data to help us predict the future to help recommend, make recommendations. 
how, but in some cases, we very specifically don't want the future to look like the past in many cases, right? But there's still some information from the past that might be useful. Um, and how, how should, if you're at a school and you're thinking, you know, I'm sitting on all this data, I have um, there's so much, so many systems, all this data I could, I could look at. But I do know that the past isn't a place that I, I want to go back to. I want to use that data to help inform some ideas about what I think the future should look like. How, how should I reconcile what seem like maybe competing ideas on the surface? Yeah, I love that question. There is, and I think love it from multiple levels. One of which is just understanding because what it tells me is that somebody's already looked at the past data and they found something that they liked or didn't like about it, right? So for instance, um, let's assume that we had some bias in our you know, original data, or maybe we find that certain minority groups or maybe first generation you know, university students aren't doing as well. And maybe that's something that we find in our, in our historic data that we're just like, hey, this is a problem. We don't want to repeat this. We want to actually fix this, right? And I think that's sort of where data science can really come into play because data science is, it encompasses a whole bunch of things that are not just about machine learning or AI, but it's also about how do you make actionable sort of next steps. So for instance, I think I was just reading about a university where they saw that there was some groups were not graduating at the same rates as other groups. And what they did was they actually implemented a whole bunch of programs to really, you know, target and sort of help and assist these groups and create a lot more community within the university. And then they started seeing their graduation rates kind of like go up, right? So that was just an example sort of of like being able to use the data to make these really good actionable insights to create these programs to address it. And so sort of that, you know, by looking at historic data, being able to say, hey, we don't want to recreate that. Let's address it and let's fix it. Yeah. So it sounds like there's there's a couple things around data that it would exist, you know, when we start talking in this space. So it's not just about having it. It's about knowing what to do with it um, once you have it. And so, you know, I'm thinking about some of the folks who are out at universities and like the example that you just gave, where they might be able to draw correlations between things that they've never known before. Um, but how do you train people to kind of be able to look at data and pick up patterns, better interpret and understand what they might be seeing when it comes to the student life cycle? Like, how do you actually help them to become data scientists, you know, whether that's a, a true title or if it's more of a, a data guru uh, within their institution? Yeah, absolutely. I love this idea also of data gurus too, because I think you're totally right. The a title is, you know, just a title, but I think there's so much about sort of the philosophy and really internalizing a lot of the practices. Um, at Salesforce, we have this sort of data maturity model. And I mean, there's a lot of data maturity models out there, but this one kind of breaks things down into, you know, four different sort of stages, right? So you have your digitize, your describe, your predict, and your prescribe phase. And the first one is, it's really kind of about this journey of how do you become sort of data gurus, really, right? So first one is you have to be able to digitize or really kind of like have that data there in front of you to start looking at. So 
whether that's going to be in traditional spreadsheets or, you know, on our platform, um, you know, it, but it just has to be in a way that you can actually start collecting that data, right? And then the next one is where you describe, so now you're looking at historic data. And this is really like charts and graphs and being able to, for instance, you know, just a simple bar chart, for instance, of the performance of the graduation rates of different um, groups would show you who's performing at, you know, average or who's performing below average or who's performing above average. And so it's just like being able to look at that historic sort of information. And then we can start getting to our predicting phases, right? So now we're starting to use like various models to start looking at the future and seeing like what we can change and how do we, you know, change any and then prescribing it where we're actually making these actions and starting to sort of like take the future into our own hands with the data informing us about where and how to make those best decisions. I love that you're kind of describing this as a journey. And, you know, I think as, as folks are taking that journey and thinking about, okay, where am I right now on that journey? How do I want to, how can I evolve my work and the conversation at school uh, toward the next step in that journey? There's a piece of that that is uh, maybe complementary, but, but separate from data, separate from technology. And that's the human component um, that sometimes gets forgotten in the conversation, but I think more and more, it's something that all of us are talking about. And, you know, Salesforce, as you know, .com just established the Office of Ethical Use to kind of address this. I'd love your perspective on beyond the tech, beyond the data, you know, why do we need to talk about ethics when we talk about data? And I think you touched on this a a minute ago as well. Um, But also really, you know, how do you think about that, you know, day to day as you're doing your work in terms of that ethical use of data? Yeah, absolutely. I think ethics is so incredibly important, especially when we're thinking about, you know, nonprofits and educational institutes, which are some of our biggest equalizers in society, really, right? Like education being that ability to raise somebody up um, from various backgrounds, right? Giving them, you know, education and knowledge and really kind of means to do more, I think, right? Um, We have you know, multiple initiatives at Salesforce, right? We have our Office of Ethical Use, um, but we also actually have a lot of sort of ground up and sort of grassroots employee-led initiatives where we are really given a lot of space and freedom to talk about a lot of these things and discuss really hard topics. There's also sort of this idea now where there's this ethical AI, which is actually kind of more like a sub-branch, I'd call it, of ethics um, as a whole. So not like ethics, like, and then like little AI, but like ethical AI as a sub-branch. And it's becoming really important right now because our technologies are advancing super quickly. So if we think about this like 10 or 15 years ago, when Clippy as a chatbot kind of came up to you, you it wasn't like super great, right? So you wouldn't think that there was somebody on the other end of Clippy, you know, text uh, typing to you directly. But now when we look at chatbots and other technologies, they're becoming really good. So there was a recent chatbot example in which the chatbot was speaking with another person on the phone and the chatbot wasn't self-identified as a chatbot. And the other person actually didn't realize this, right? So there's a lot of sort of ethical implications there about what do we want to do, especially now that the technology is getting so good. And we just, we have a lot of opportunity to do so much, but there's all these like open-ended questions right now that we're really in the midst of discussing right now. Now that we sort of have this power that's coming in, what are we going to do with it ultimately? I just... (laughs) 
uh, went on a little journey myself, as you mentioned Clippy, which I hadn't even thought about Clippy, honestly, like I was just, you said it and I'm like, wait, what is she talking about? And then I had the visualization (laughs) and then I was like, oh yeah, I spent most of my time trying to figure out how to disable that thing. I love that Clippy is kind of like the forefather of AI in this discussion. I'm just laughing. I'm like, if only Clippy knew what he accomplished back in the day. How do I get this guy off my screen? Um, yeah. Like, I mean, so then, <laughs> how did you feel about Clippy? Like from your, I mean, obviously Haley and I are trying to eliminate Clippy from our lives, but like, did you feel like, oh my God, this is like the beginning of something? <laughs> Well, so it's really interesting, actually. So Clippy is kind of a chatbot. Yeah. Right? It was supposed to show up. You were supposed to be able to type in what you needed. And it was supposed to help you by guiding you to some article or some some resource, right? That was supposed to alleviate your woes. And so you were supposed to adopt the product faster, right? The problem with Clippy and a lot of the problems with chatbots, you know, uh, a ways back, like, you know, when they first came out, is that they weren't done very well. And so this is sort of this question about how technology not done well can become very annoying. And all you do is you're just like, go away, Clippy, go away. (laughs) But now we're kind of seeing that the technologies are evolving, right? And so I really do, there's there's actually a lot of very, very funny examples um, with chatbots. And there are some, you know, just kind of funny ones, but there are actually some like kind of ones that turn out very angry very quickly. Um, chatbots and uh, machine learning models and AI, they're kind of like children in a lot of ways, right? And so when we sort of think about you know, children, as we're growing up, we teach them things and we can teach them things in a lab. But when they go out into the real world, we don't really know all of the different sort of situations that they're going to get into. So there's also this funny example about a self-driving car and they're taking the self-driving car on the road and a chicken, like a large a man <laughs> dressed in a chicken suit, walks across the road. Right. Like, why did the chicken cross the road (laughs) to confuse the self-driving car? Basically, The car was so Um, confused, but it would have never been able to figure this out. Like, it's not something where scientists or researchers in a lab are going to sit there thinking, what happens if there happens to be a um, comic convention or something down the street? And a man in a chicken suit walks across. Yeah. So, okay. So wait a minute. So there's, um, I love this example. Um, (laughs) I'm going to be thinking about the man in a chicken suit for a while now. Um, (laughs) We have a mascot for a podcast now, Jason. (laughs) Right. We need that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, but if I can imagine if you're maybe listening and you're out of school and you're thinking, oh God, I was just thinking that I want to explore chatbots and now I'm totally not doing that. I'm totally getting nervous about it. Right. Because what, because you're right, you're putting this something out into the wild and there's all these variables. So how do you, you know, how would you guide somebody? Cause you know, we've seen some customers have some really nice success by bringing in people who are subject matter experts, kind of helping to make sure the chatbot is communicating in the right way with students, but there's always variables and things we don't anticipate. How, how would you talk to a customer who's excited about it? They, there's, they've got some good ideas, but maybe they have some healthy, um, you know, questions around you know, some of the unknowns. How do you how do you coach someone through that? Yeah, that's a really good question. 
I think it's really, really good to have concerns about it. I think it's also good to sort of, you know, um, speak. I mean, like, it's. It, I think it's hard right now to answer that question because it's very general and general questions are answered in broad strokes, essentially, right? So more specific questions we can answer more specifically. Um, I'd say, you know, with proper monitoring, you know, once you deploy any AI model, really, you're supposed to monitor it anyways. Um, and that's a, one of the differences between AI versus software. So in traditional software, once we sort of release into production, we're like, hey, we're done. This is successful. We're so excited, right? Um, but with AI, actually, the instance that the day that we release our model is the day that the model is the best. And after that, there's various reasons why, but it kind of starts to degrade in some in some senses of the word. And so we have to kind of monitor it and retrain it as we go along. Yeah, that's great. I love thinking about that as a sort of an ongoing learning process. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I mean, if we want to get like technical, there there are there are a lot of technical ways to sort of address those issues as well. So I won't get too technical. I like it, though. I like the technical part. So <laughs> in a lot of ways, I mean, the, the problems that, you know, we're talking about here are we're using data to help us interpret those problems. Right. And that's the things that face us as universities or as nonprofits or, you know, really in general as a society. So what are some of the problems specifically in education that we can start um, solving with the help of data. We, we alluded to this a little bit, but if we think of some specifics, what are some of those problems we can start to think about and wrap our brain around? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've sort of been thinking a lot about is the idea of student debt, right? Um, and so I think when I was looking at some stats earlier, we're looking at about $1.3 trillion in student loan debt. That's that's a lot, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and the the worst situation, in my mind at least, anyways, is if a student starts university and is unable to finish it. So now you've got that sort of post university debt, but with the pre university sort of credentials, mm-hmm. right? So I think when we look at uh, some stats, we are saying that. Maybe only about half of those, um, about half of those, about 60% almost in some studies, will leave college without a diploma. So a lot of these are going to be that are, a lot of these folks that are affected are low-income, first-generation, and minority students, and, and they end up dropping out. This is a big issue, right? This is a huge problem. So I think there's a lot of different ways of which we can sort of address this, right? Yeah, Everything great. from helping people find their correct or best sort of educational option or institution, right? Whether that's a city college or a trade school or, you know, online learning paths. Like there's so many different ways for people to get the education that they seek. And we may be able to help them do that without encountering all that debt and dropout rates. You know, there's there's quite a few problems that you named earlier um, that you're, you know, kind of alluding that if we knew more about the data behind it, we could do more with it. And if we think about data as the common thread um, between, you know, what we're doing and, and where we want to go, uh, what are, what are, I guess, 
Can we dive into one of those problems that you had kind of talked about and think about how we could start to use the data to help us solve that problem? I think one of the ones that you mentioned was around student debt, and maybe we can dive in a little bit more to that. Yeah, so I think student debt is sort of a symptom of several different issues, right? Um, I mean, there's there's sort of the student debt that comes from people who, you know, maybe just they're taking a little longer to complete their degrees, um, or maybe they're just going to really expensive universities and not getting enough financial aid. Um, but the biggest issue actually with student debt, that, or at least that I think, are for the students who start but don't actually get to complete the degree. So now what you end up with is student debt, but with your sort of like somewhat post-college debt, but with pre-college sort of wages and income. And so it's really, really hard to attack that, right? Because now you're just kind of trying to swim out of this debt. And when we look at it, we see almost like a third of college students actually just drop out entirely, which is just a lot. Um, and that, that's just... Um, I think there's stats that say about $1.3 uh, trillion are in student uh, loan debt total, right, overall. Um, but so the things are, when we kind of look at that, about why people are not actually completing their college degrees, we see a whole bunch of different reasons, right? So they may not be, um, they may not have gotten the right program in the beginning, or they might not be with the right teachers, or they might not be in the right learning style. Um, and I think sort of, you know, Jason, I think you alluded to, alluded to it a little bit where there's sort of this matching mismatch, right? Because I believe every student, if they want to, I think everybody should have the opportunity to be able to get the education that is the correct one for them, right? So I think there's a matching mismatch here. Let's let's dig in a little bit on on some of this. So you know, talking about the matching scenario or many of the others, you know, there's what I would I maybe refer to as like ingredients that go into um, any recommendation, right? D data sources, other, other kinds of things that are happening that uh, then end up resulting in a recommendation. Um, how should we be thinking about that? How how should schools be thinking about making sure that they have the right ingredients you know what, what really goes into making ai ai yeah sure so if we think about sort of the the ingredients of ai i mean i sort of think about um sometimes ai is you know like cooking right so where when you think about what you're going to cook you're not like oh i just want to cook something it's more like i'm cooking for something right so i'm cooking for a use case i'm cooking you know to address a problem which may be you know um getting the right students into the right programs whether you know it's some sort of institution um for them right and so we can sort of think about um, our data as sort of our raw ingredients, right? So we're thinking about, you know, where's our data coming from? You know, is there privacy, security, um, ethical, legal concerns, right? So, and then what we do is we take that data and then we kind of put it into this recipe, right? But, but you don't want to, um, or an algorithm, right? But not all algorithms are created equally. Um, and there's there's definitely a lot of sort of questions about visibility and transparency and explainability, really, when it comes to algorithms, right? So we have this concept of interpretability um, versus sort of like black box algorithms as well. Um, and so there's just there's just a lot there in terms of how do we combine our raw data ingredients in a way that makes the most sense to address our use case um, to get the final product that actually works for us. 
There's also this other layer, which is kind of our data visualization and our presentation layer. And we have some potential for introducing some biases here, depending on how we surface up our data and how we want to address it. So it's a fairly sort of complex idea, but um, the first thing we always want to start with is sort of thinking about what our use case and our, what our exact question that we want to solve is and thinking about the context of that. Okay, that is a beautiful analogy, though, like the recipe thing. And you even brought up presentation, like the plating of it. Like, oh, yeah, that's a really beautiful analogy <laughs> for, for what you're doing. Like, I'm, oh, man, I've got it. I'm like, okay, so dietary like restrictions or biases, like I got this. I totally, I'm like totally clued into this analogy here. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to get back to something you mentioned earlier. Um, so we talked about the ethical thread a bit. Um, you mentioned and, and alluded to sort of a philosophical thread. And so I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about the philosophical approach to AI um, that you mentioned before. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, there's a whole bunch of different philosophies. One of the ones that I really, really like um, and, and sort of like modeling some of our work on is this idea of assistive AI. So assistive AI is AI that just kind of helps you with things. Um, it doesn't actually do things for you, though. And a really good example of this is Google Maps, right? So Google Maps, you tell it where you want to go. You say, I'm here and I want to go from point A to point B. And Google Maps basically just tells you, oh, here's some directions. Um, we think that the fastest route might be this way or this way. There's an accident here. There's traffic here. It tells you information, but it doesn't actually do anything for you, right? And you don't need to know which algorithms are underlying it as well. So it just surfaces up kind of like exactly the amount of information you need to know, right? Um, but there's some key things here, right? So first of all, Google Maps does not drive my car for me. Um, and it doesn't yell at me if I decide to take like a left turn because I want to go into Starbucks for a frappuccino. Right. Although I so, find like that recalculating <laughs> thing to be a little aggressive. Yeah, it, like, it's like it's like the it's like the Google uh, Maps eye roll. You know, it's like fine. I'm yeah, it's like for you. oh my god, yeah. really? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's like it's like the Clippy. <laughs> um, it's totally like Clippy. Yeah. Yes. Well, maybe, Everything always goes I mean, to <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to write um, a book I mean, it's, in my life. Sorry. <laughs> I see. You're trying to write a letter. No, I'm not writing a letter. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. That's so <laughs> aggravating. I remember. It's like, it looks like you're writing a letter. I'm not writing a letter, Clippy. Leave me alone. <laughs> Well, okay. So actually, so if Google Maps, I think, or if any sort of AI is being a little too intrusive, right, there is this idea where maybe we can allow the users to kind of control the level of aggressiveness or assertiveness that our AI, even from an assistive standpoint, can have, right? So there, there are sort of like different ways that we can, you know, tweak things. Um, but, but, oh yeah, so going back to the sort of assistive AI approach, basically, if I make a turn and I, I want to go to Starbucks and get a frappuccino, the AI is not going to yell at me. It's not going to penalize me. It's just going to sort of redirect me, right? And it's going to update that. Um, and this is sort of like that idea where it's just helping me by providing me with a lot of information, but not doing things for me. Right. You still make the final decision of where you stop the car, right? Yeah. Absolutely. The humans are always the ones who make the choices, ultimately. Yeah, I love that. I think that actually is great in terms of, 
you know, the work that I think a lot of folks are trying to do, right? They want to make the decisions, but they want guidance. We are, all of us, I think in higher ed are sitting on a lot of data and it can be overwhelming to sort through all of that and to make sense of it. So to have technology that can help us, give us that GPS um, to use that analogy, and then we decide kind of where to make the turn, what, what to do with that information and take into account things that are happening also around us that the GPS doesn't see. I think that's, that's a fantastic way to think about a framework for having a discussion about what it means in a, in a higher ed context. Suzanne, we got to wrap up here, but uh, before we go, I would love for you to tell um, tell our listeners about sort of maybe a little preview into, into the future about, you know, some of the things that you're working on and, and um, what maybe we can expect from salesforce.org when it comes to data and AI. Um, so there, there's a lot from Einstein coming in from Salesforce in general, and there's a lot of potential in the education space that we're still trying to figure out and exactly decide what we want to pursue. Um, there's just a lot that we can help with that we think we can help students and teachers and faculty with. And we're just really, really excited about being on that journey. So Suzanne, we want to thank you so much for being here with us. It's just uh, just a pleasure talking with you and great to, to have you on the Salesforce team and, and partnering with us on this on this journey. Thank you. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been really inspired today. I'm excited to go make some data stir fry a little <laughs> bit. So I appreciate all the tips. <laughs> nice. Um, I think I'm doing delivery myself. I don't know. What does that mean? I'm outsourcing my data. You hired a consultant. That's what that means, you know. <laughs> um, so on that note, um, who knows if we'll be back for episode four or not. Um, but, too far. But thank everyone for listening. It's always so much fun doing these podcasts. I hope that we can just do them forever. But yeah, great talking with you again, Haley, Suzanne. Thank you for investing the time with us and with our with our listeners today. And uh, yeah, Haley and I will see you with another exciting guest on our next episode. Thanks so much for being with us today. Take care. Bye.